Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Evening, folks. Hey, welcome along. Thrilled that you're here with us on this, the first week of Advent. Um, As Anna pointed out to you, um, over the next three weeks, we're going to be Um, using the tagline, so to honor him. Um, For those of you who don't know where that comes from, it comes from a line out of the the Christmas song, The Little Drummer Boy. And uh, we'll we'll unpack that more as we go through the next weeks. But our focus is going to be on the Magi, the wise men and the gifts that they brought to the newborn king. In this first message, um, the first part of it, let me warn you, is a mixture of history and geography, so if they're not your favorite subjects, um, see if you can hang in. Um, you'll, at, at one point, I'm sure in the message, maybe at a number of them, you'll be thinking, what on earth is this guy on about, and where is he going with this? I'm really hopeful that it'll pull together at some point and, um, and it'll make sense. Um, we had a fire drill this morning, and as I was walking out, a couple of people came over to me and the wife was laughing and said, um, there was a point in your message this morning where my husband leant over and said, what on earth is he on about? And where is this going to go? And no sooner had he said this, you said, now at this point you will be thinking, what is he on about and where is he going to go? And, and I sort of, you know, did, so I'm sure that point will come to you as well. Um, the history is, um, I hope, interesting, but, but somewhat supposition, okay? And if you are really unhappy with, I, with what I say, you can take it with a grain of salt. This is not, uh, the history at least, is not something that I would build a church on necessarily. That's the introduction, okay? When it comes to Christmas stories, it is, or just any kinds of stories, historical stories, it seems that history and fact and fantasy often get totally muddled. Um, the, the stories can often be cluttered with so many customs, so many traditions, so many legends, and, and even some sometimes strange characters, that at least as far as the Christmas story goes, some scholars have dismissed it as being completely fictional. Now, I'd like to think that that's a case of um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But, but there is always a problem for history students when dealing with ancient stories. How do you separate fact from fiction? Because history and fantasy can easily become intertwined and then somewhat jumbled. I'm sure many of you have heard of the legendary English king, King Arthur. And he's a really good example of how history and fantasy begin to intertwine. Now, historians believe that there probably was a real chieftain named Arthur who ruled over some British tribes during the time of the Saxon invasions. But who he was, how he lived, and whether there really was a Camelot or not, and where it was located, those are incredibly difficult to ascertain. Sir Thomas Mallory's book, La Morte d'Arthur, and Lord Tennyson's poem, The Idols of the King, and T.H. White's book, The Once and Future King, all served to create a legend around this historic figure. The legend of Arthur and Camelot, not to mention, of course, Disney's Sword in the Stone. 
But nearly all historians would say those works, as wonderful, as romantic, as entertaining as they might be, have embellished the story so far beyond the facts that the real historical Arthur is, is absolutely unrecognizable. Now, exactly the same process has taken place in the story of Santa Claus. The name Santa Claus is actually derived from the old name for her, a historical figure called St. Nicholas. Now, St. Nicholas was a bishop in My Myra in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. And he was famous for his compassion to children. He became the patron saint of children, his feast day being December the 6th. Now, the Dutch name for St. Nicholas was Sinterklaas. When the Dutch settlers moved from Holland to New Amsterdam, which of course is now New York, they shortened Sinterklaas to Santa Claus, and eventually it evolves into Santa Claus. They portrayed him as an old man with a long white beard in a bishop's hat and staff and red robes, and apparently, as the legend goes, he rode on a white horse across the rooftops, dropping gifts for the children down the chimneys. Well, in 1863, an American illustrator by the name of Thomas Nast portrayed St. Nicholas as a rotund, bearded figure. The bishop's robes were replaced by a warm red winter outfit, and by the early 1900s, he had evolved into the red and white suited, oversized guzzler of Coca-Cola who has ridden the advertising wave to global fame. Something happens in the process, and the facts get lost in the embellished fantasy. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Galadriel explains how the, ling the ring was lost, and she says, history becomes legend, and legend becomes myth. And that's certainly what I think has happened with Arthur and St. Nicholas, and I suspect much of the same process has taken place when it comes to the Magi as well. I want to read the portion of the scripture that talks about the Magi. It's found in Matthew chapter 2 and in verses 1 through 12, and I'm reading it in the message translation. Notice as you listen, try and listen with fresh ears if you would, and notice how much of the custom that you're associated with uh, Christmas and with the Magi is actually not in the text. It says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east. They asked round, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth and were on a pilgrimage to worship him. When word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified, and not Herod alone, but most of Jerusalem as well. Herod lost no time. He gathered all the high priests and religious, religion scholars in the city together and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They told him Bethlehem, Judah territory. The prophet Micah wrote it plainly. It's you, Bethlehem, and Judah's land, no longer bringing up the rear. From you will come the leader who will shepherd rule my people, my Israel. Herod then arranged a secret meeting with the scholars from the east, pretending to be as devout as they were. He got them to tell him exactly when the birth announcement star appeared. Then he told them to, uh, about the prophecy of Bethlehem and said, Go and find this child, leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word and I'll join you at once in your worship. 
Instructed by the king, they set off. The star appeared again, the same star they had seen in the eastern skies. It led them on until it hovered over the place of the child. They could hardly contain themselves. They were in the right place. They had arrived at the right time. They entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. Overcome, they kneeled and worshipped him. Then they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod, so they worked out another route, left the territory without being seen, and returned to their own country. Anyone raised with our cultural stories of Christmas and the wise men reading that for the first time, I think would be surprised by the well-known details that are completely missing, details that you and I just take for granted. First of all, there aren't any camels mentioned. The wise men aren't named. We know, of course, they're called Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. The text doesn't say that there were three wise men. In actual fact, it doesn't specify any number at all. It doesn't say they were kings. Of course, we know they are because we've sung for years, we three kings of Orient are. It actually doesn't say they were from the Orient, from Persia or India or China as legends state. And actually, it doesn't say that they followed a star for a long journey across desolate desert sands. It says there was some kind of astronomical event that announced the birth of the king, and when they got to Jerusalem, it reappeared and, and led them um, to Bethlehem. Now, I want you to know I do believe in the historicity of the story as Matthew gives it to us, which essentially boiled down is some historical personages from a region called the East came seeking a newborn king because of some astrological event that they had observed. Having arrived in Jerusalem, it reappeared and led them to the newborn king. Questioning the embellished version, you know, the, the kings from the Orient who rode camels across the desert, and etc., etc., et isn't the same thing as denying the historicity of the original event in the same way that questioning the details about modern Santa Claus isn't the same as denying that there was a bishop in Asia Minor called St. Nicholas. And the goal of this sermon is not to so deliberately upset you that you, know, you can't sing Christmas carols anymore or when you see a Christmas card with three camels and three kings on it, you'll be just devastated. However, I do want to say that the likelihood that three exotic kings, strangers carrying fabulous wealth, journeying across desert from the Far East or Persia, actually isn't very strong. The evidence is not strong. Now, you might know that the word magi is actually a Persian word, and uh, you might say, well, surely, Don, that indicates that the magi were actually from the Far East, from the Persian area. Well, you know, the answer to that is kind of yes and no. There were men, a, a group of Zoroastrian priests called magi who were from the Persian area, but they had the peak of their influence Five, six hundred years before the birth of Christ, they reached their peak under a king called Cyrus the Great, which if you know your history is the same time as Daniel the prophet. History tells us that when they reached the peak of their powers, Cyrus died, 530 BC, and these men decided that they would initiate a coup and try and take over the Babylonian government. Well, the coup failed, and Darius the Mede swept into the city and killed most of the Magi. As a result, of course, they rapidly declined in power and influence. It's hard to exercise power and influence when you're dead. 
Alexander the Great finished what Darius began. He destroyed the remaining Magi temples, burned their books, and decimated their caste. So 500 years later, by the time of Christ, they were an absolutely spent force. And the likelihood that wealthy, influential Persian Magi set out on a long journey to pay homage to a distant Jewish king seems historically very unlikely. In addition to that, by Jesus' time, the Persian Empire, the people of the, uh, the Persians, had agreed with the powers that be in Rome that they would stay east of the Euphrates River, kind of like a Berlin Wall barrier between the two kingdoms. They certainly had no political nor religious motivation to violate that agreement and thereby incur the wrath of the Roman government. So by Christ's time, this group called Magi were, were largely gone. In addition to that, the term Magi by Christ's time had a much wider meaning than the Persian Zoroastrian sect of Daniel's time. It was a word that had come to mean just magicians, astrologers, wise men of any kind found anywhere. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 13, verses 6 and 8, we hear of Paul meeting a man called Elimas, who is a magus, uh, a magician, a magi. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 2. Scholar Raymond Brown says the term magi refers to those who engage in occult arts and cover a wide range of astrologers, fortune tellers, and magicians of varying plausibility. So the magi just meant wise men from wherever they came, the whole of the Middle East in general, in fact. In fact, the Roman historian Pliny talked about Arabia being a place where magi were found. So all that to say, some scholars suggest that rather than Babylonian or Persian magi crossing the desert as we imagine them to have done, coming to Jerusalem, that there were, in fact, other stargazers, other wise men and sages who had the means and a much stronger motivation to make the journey to Jerusalem. Now, the city of Petra, I'm sure you've heard of Petra. It tops the bucket list for tourists visiting the Middle East. Uh, an amazing city cast, uh, carved out of red sandstone cliffs in southern Jordan has a mysterious allure that very few other sites can, in fact, match. In Jesus' time, this city, Petra, was the thriving capital of what was called the Nabataean kingdom. It was a major power in the region, and the Nabataeans dominated the trade routes that extended from India on one side right through the Arabian Peninsula to Egypt, Parthian, and Rome on the other side. They were an incredibly advanced culture, and they created some of the cleverest water retention systems that the world has ever seen. The Old Testament mentions the Nabataean kingdom and suggests that they were descendant from Abraham through his son Ishmael. So they had a shared ancestry with the Jewish people and their religions shared the same roots. So the Nabataean culture was a deeply Abrahamic religion. As such, it would have a natural interest. The Nabataeans would have had a natural interest in a newborn king born in neighboring Judea. Along with that, they had political and economic interests in a person who would possibly sit on the Judean throne. 
Herod's mother. Herod presently is the ruler, as we know. Herod's mother was a Nabataean princess. Herod was brought up in the court of Nabataean royal family. When Jesus was born, Aretas IV ruled the Nabataean kingdom, and he and Herod were, were allies. In fact, Herod's heir, Herod Antipas, married Aretas IV's daughter. So all that to say, a shared culture, shared history, shared religion to a degree, shared politics. Aretas IV had every motivation to send envoys to Herod's court on hearing the news that a new king may have been bought. Nabataean magi would have a natural interest in the Jewish Messiah. Now, if you're following me and you're any decent sort of in terms of geography, you might be saying, but hang on, Don. It says the Magi came from the east and isn't Petra kind of southeast, not, not, not classically east? Okay, good question. If the early Christians living in Asia Minor Greece or Rome are reading Matthew's account, then for them East geographically truly would be Persia. But they weren't Matthew's original audience. Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians who live in Judea and Syria. And if you live there, East wasn't Persia and Babylon, that was North. And if you know anything about Jeremiah's prophecies, when he's prophesying that the Babylonians would come, he said a storm is coming out of the north. So for people in Judea, the north is Babylon, the east is the Arabian Peninsula. Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, says for people in Jesus' time, the east referred to the Jordanian Arabian deserts. Arab scholar Tony Malouf says East direction for the Palestinian Jew is a technical term referring to the Syro-Arabian Desert. And scholar Margaret Barber tops it all off and she says the East, for legal purposes, was defined as beyond Reckham, probably Petra. Petra is southeast of Jerusalem, but it's in an area that was referred to as the East in the same way that Americans speak of the South. And it's not particularly directly south, but it is just generally the south. And they understand that terminology in the same way that the people of Judea would understand the east. All that to say, I think the theory of the Magi coming from the Nabataean kingdom and not making their way across the desert from a pretty much extinct Zoroastrian sect is much, much more likely. And when you consider the gifts that these wise scholars bought, it strengthens the idea that they came not from Orient R, but from southeast in the Arabian desert from Petra. The gifts they brought, uh, gold, frankincense and, and frankincense, and myrrh, have assumed profound religious symbolism over the centuries. So you'll often hear people talk about gold being um, representative of Jesus' kingly status. Frankincense was used for worship and marks Jesus as prophet and priest, and myrrh was in, used for embalming dead bodies and points to Christ's ultimate redemptive death. And I'm not problemed with people who say those kinds of things. In fact, I've said them uh, over the years. However, Matthew, in his record, makes no mention about the religious symbolism of these gifts. 
Knowing what we know about the Nabataean kingdom and culture, these gifts weren't, in fact, exotic, legendary, luxurious gifts of some mysterious Persian oriental kings. They were not primarily mystical symbols referring to Christ's identity and destiny. They were the ordinary currency and commodities of the Nabataean kingdom in the first century. It was their stock and trade. If you examine the use and provenance, the, the origin of these gifts, they clearly point to Nabataeans, to, to Petra. Gold was one of the sources of the fabulous wealth of the Nabataeans. Arabian gold was legendary, considered the finest in the world. So fine, they said, that it didn't need to be smelted. One area of the desert was called the Cradle of Gold, and some people think that Solomon's famous mines were found in this area. Gold actually is still a, uh, still, um, a mined in Arabia today, although, of course, the resources are much depleted. Gold for the Nabataeans wasn't some exotic item. It was their cash crop. It was their normal. It was their stock and trade. Frankincense was of great value in ancient cultures. It was used in medicine and religious worship and, and in funerals. And it was tapped from a tree that grew in southern Arabia, which is Nabataean territory. Myrrh is made from gum resin, dried, compressed, and burnt to produce aromatic smoke, also to produce a rich perfume. It was an analgesic used to treat everything from battle wounds to skin diseases. Myrrh came from southern Arabia, Nabataean territory. So the gifts that they brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are classically Nabataean gifts. And I think all of that goes to strengthen this idea that the Magi weren't from Persia, from the Orient, but were actually from the Nabataean kingdom relatively nearby. Now, this is the point where I said, some people are thinking, okay, so what? What on earth does that have to do with me? So glad you asked, because here's the rub. When it comes to honoring Christ with our gifts, what we do is we bring what is uniquely ours. I think we can get so tied up in the notion of the need to bring some exotic, luxurious, mysterious, deeply symbolic gift that, that most of us, are we're counted out. We just think, I, I don't have that. If I'm supposed to bring some deeply spiritual offering, I'm out of the game because I've only got little old, incredibly ordinary, mundane me. Well, when it comes to people being made in the image of God, suggesting that they're mundane and boring is probably, quite frankly, sacrilegious. And I want to suggest to you that you do bring what is uniquely you. And that might be something as simple as your hospitality. You say, well, but there's nothing spiritual in that, Don. Anybody can cook, you know, anybody can bake. Just, you know, I mean, how do you honor him with, with that? Well, you bring it. I mentioned this morning, I, I didn't mean to sound sexist, but um, somebody once commented that things would have been so much better in the first Christmas if there had been three wise women rather than three wise men. I mean, they would have asked for directions, they would have arrived on time, they would have helped deliver the baby, they would have cleaned up the stable, they would have made casserole, and they would have brought gifts that could be used. Wet wipes and nappies and, you know, what do you do with frankincense and myrrh with a newborn baby? Bring what you have, okay? Bring what you have. It might be your administrative ability. 
It could be your musical ability. It might just be your love for and ability to serve the members of your family. Friends, it might be your athletic prowess. It might be your IT skills. It might just be an ability to speak a kind word and give a friendly smile to somebody who desperately needs it. It could be your artistic, your decorative skills. It might be your IQ or your EQ. None of which in that list is profoundly, deeply spiritual. But friends, you've got to understand, gold, frankincense, and myrrh weren't deeply spiritual for the Nabataeans either. It was their cash crop. It was their normal. It was their stock in trade. Bring your normal. Bring it and offer it to them. There's always somebody when I say this that says, but Don, honestly, I don't have anything. I look at my life and think, I don't have anything that stands out to offer. And I want to contradict you and say, yes, you do. Every single person does. In Luke chapter 23, we've got the story of the repentant thief. You remember him, you know, Jesus being crucified between two thieves. One is mocking him. The other, in the midst of all of that, turns to Jesus with repentance and says, will you remember me when you come to your kingdom? Here's a man who's really got nothing to offer. Okay, he's got no future. He's got no gifts that are going to be of any use. He's going to be dead very, very shortly. You know, you sometimes hear people saying God has saved you so that he can use you. Well, God saved this man not so that he could use him. Because, you know, God doesn't use people as a means to an end. He loves people. He loves this man. This man could genuinely say, I've got nothing to offer. Except that a great church father, St. Gregory the Great, said this, Although punishment holds captive his every member, except his heart and his tongue, he offers what he's free to give. He believes with his heart and he confesses with his tongue. He's got something. It might seem small, but he brings what he has, what is uniquely his. Don't refuse to offer your gifts because you think they're insignificant because they're mundane, because they're boring, because they're not spiritual. Friends, you have no idea what they mean in the light of eternity. You have no, no idea what a smile and a kind word might be to somebody in the light of eternity. My uncle, my namesake actually, was uh, an usher in a church, and he used to often say, I don't, I don't do much. I, I, I have hardly got anything to offer. I just welcome people, I shake their hands, and I say hello. How, how profoundly unspiritual is that? Except at my Uncle Don's funeral, a man stood up and told this story. He said, I came to church as a, an unchurched unbeliever. He said, I met this towering man at the door and he simply shook my hand and welcomed me. He said, in that instant, I became a believer. He said, I can't explain that theologically. I can't even explain it intellectually. But I know that before I shook his hand, I was an unbeliever. And after I shook his hand, I believed. I mean, he never knew that. I don't think that man ever told him. But a handshake and a kind word. It's all he had, he said, but he offered it. And I don't know what you've got, but you've got something. And as small as it might seem to you, offer it. In the light of eternity, you do not know what that will mean. And I want to finish this message with a story that graphically illustrates the idea that what you give, even if you don't know it this side of eternity, really does matter. 
Nearly 100 years ago, the Philadelphia Church in Stockholm, Sweden, sent two missionary couples to the Congo. David and Svea Flood, along with Joel and Bertha Erickson, macheted their way through the jungle to establish a mission station. During their first year, they didn't see a single convert. The village was resistant to the gospel because they were afraid of offending their tribal gods. But that didn't keep Svea from sharing the love of Jesus with a five-year-old boy who delivered fresh eggs to their back door every day. Svea became pregnant not long after arriving, but she was bedridden for much of the pregnancy battling malaria. She gave birth to a girl, Aina, on April the 13th, 1923, but Svea died 17 days later. David made a casket and buried his 27-year-old wife on the mountainside overlooking the village. Grief and then bitterness flooded his heart. David gave his daughter, Ina, to the Ericsons and returned to Sweden with dashed dreams and a broken heart. He would spend the next five decades of his life trying to drown his sorrows with drink. He forewarned those that he knew never to mention God's name in his presence. The Ericsons raised Ina until she was a toddler, and then both of them died within three, de- three days of each other when the villagers poisoned them to death. Aina was given to an American missionary couple, Arthur and Anna Berg. The Bergs renamed their adopted daughter Agnes. They called her Aggie. She, uh, they eventually returned to America to pastor a church in South Dakota. After high school, Aggie enrolled at North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She met and married a fellow student, Dewey Hurst, and they started a family of their own, served a number of churches as pastors. Then Dr. Hurst became president of the Northwest Bible College. On their 25th wedding anniversary, the college gave the Hursts a special gift, a trip to Sweden. Aggie's sole purpose in going was to find her biological father, who had abandoned her 50 years before. They searched Stockholm for five days without a trace. Then on the last day before departure, they got a tip that led to the third floor of a ramshackle department building. There they found Aggie's dad, who was on his deathbed with a failing liver. The last words David Flood ever expected to hear were, Papa, it's Ina. And the first words out of his mouth were filled with remorse. I never meant to give you away. When they embraced, a 50-year curse of bitterness was broken. A father and daughter were reconciled that day, and a father was reconciled with his heavenly father for eternity. When Aggie landed in Seattle the next day, she received news that her father had passed away while they were in flight. Now here's the rest of the story. Five years later, Aggie and Dewey Hurst attended a World Pentecostal Conference in London, England. 10,000 delegates from around the world gathered at Royal Prince Albert Hall. One of the speakers opening, uh, on opening night was Ruhugita Nagora, superintendent of the Pentecostal Church in Zaire. What caught Aggie's attention was the fact that Ruhugita was from the region where her parents had been missionaries half a century before. After the message, Aggie spoke to him through an interpreter, and she asked him if, she knew, if he knew the village where she was born, and Ruhugita said that he had actually grown up in that village. She said, did you know of missionaries by the name of Flood? And he said, every day I would go to Svea Flood's back door with a basket of eggs, and she would tell me about Jesus. I don't know that she had a single convert in all of Africa beside me. Then he added, shortly after I accepted Christ, Svea died and her husband left. They had a baby girl called Aina, and I've always wondered what happened to her. 
When Aggie revealed that she was Ina, Ruhugita started to sob, and they embraced like siblings separated from birth. Then Ruhugita said, just months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's grave on behalf of the hundreds of churches and the hundreds of thousands of believers in Zaire. Thank you for letting your mother die so that many of us could live. Didn't have a clue. Must have thought, what a waste. What have I to offer? Absolutely nothing. A seed falling into the ground, gone. David and Sphere Flood didn't have a single convert that they knew of. They thought it was all for naught. But one seed took root and bore fruit beyond belief. And you never know which seed it will be. Friends, bring what you have. To honour him, bring what you have. It might be a handshake. It might just be a smile. It might be musical talents, athletic ability, or great mind for figures and administrative. Whatever it is, it's, if it's your creative skills, bring it and lay it at his feet. It might be gold, frankincense, and myrrh, like the Nabataeans. It might just be five loaves and two small fish. Like the drummer boy, it might simply just be your drum. But so to honor him, come, lay it at his feet, and let God take it in his hands, bless it, break it, and multiply it. You just never know where it will go. Bring what you have. Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness and grace to us. We thank you that all we have has come from you, and what we simply do is give back to you what you've given us. Help us to see, Lord. Would you touch us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you open eyes that are blurred and sometimes blinded to what you have put inside of us? Because, Lord, we want to bring it back to your feet. We want to honor you by giving it to you and allowing you to bless, break, and multiply. Through this Advent season, Father, may we be like the Nabataeans. May we bring what simply might be our stock and trade, just the normal, the everyday, but help us to see with eyes that are anointed by your Holy Spirit and help us to bring it and lay it at your feet in honour of you. We ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.